song number 207. And certainly as we mark that, we'll sing that later in our service tonight as we come to the time following our lesson. We have already had such a delightful experience with our prayers, with our songs, with the opportunity to encourage one another by lifting up the banner and truth of the Word of God and the essence of faith. For the next little while, why don't we give some thought to some questions and answers? I might say that as you provide these questions, again, it is a compliment to, to you in terms of providing them in that box out there or sharing them with me personally. Either way, I try to take note of them and then use them for, for the, these services which we have once a month. Tonight's questions and answers, as usual, will follow our pattern that will proceed like this. As always, could I encourage us to be mindful of passages like the value connected to questions and answers, as we might well notice in Mark eleven twenty nine? 29. There, you may recall, they were asking the Lord some questions, and certainly we, we appreciate the opportunity to ask a question. Tonight, as we give thought to that, the questions tonight will be few because they're so involved. Here's our question. What is the detailed order of events when Jesus returns? And furthermore, what details are there concerning the body each person will have after the Lord's return? That question, as you could well imagine, is one that is a bit involved and certainly a bit extensive. But that certainly does not remove from us the interest in at least using what the Bible has to say relative to it. And so that's my attempt tonight. I've divided the answer to that question into a few components, into a few parts. And let's look at the first one. You may have noticed the person who asked it worded it like this. What's the detailed order of events? When Jesus returns, and so might be fair to go ahead and ask. You and I notice that our God is a God of orderliness. He is not the God of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and following. And in that regard, it might not be surprising that the Bible does say somewhat of an order. Jesus' return is a certainty. The person who at least made allusion to that also had that in mind, and you and I might do well to recollect it too. Jesus himself said in John 14, 1, as he contemplated the very night before he was crucified, of course, but it was there that he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Even Jesus pointed out that there was... A return. He was coming back. You and I might remember in some ways that was even highlighted as strongly, if not more so, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. On the occasion of His ascension, those beings that were there present, it was they who asked the question, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus ye have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go. Thus they were told, they were reminded, it was impressed upon them that his departure was not the last time he was going to be in this environment. The fact of the Lord's return led me to say there at the top of that slide, it might be thus possible to ask, what will be the condition of earth when the Lord returns? Will it be some kind of barren landscape? Will it be a void in essence? And you and I have the fullest assurance of the Word of God that that will not be the case. 
this earth will be such that the particulars will be proceeding as they are now. Heat and cold, summer and winter. Genesis 8.22 had in fact prophesied and rather directly declared that such would be the case, that those issues, those matters would continue. And not only that, people will be here. It is not as if by some means a human family will have destroyed themselves by nuclear armament or by some other catastrophic event. Jesus talked about women and men, that they would, some would be in the field, some would be sleeping. Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 and following. And thus, when the time comes for the Lord to return, it's going to be a circumstance in which individuals are here, people alive upon earth, but not only that. What might we say about the nature of that return? The Word of God is very strong in highlighting the suddenness of it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 2, We are there told the Lord Himself shall descend, and He'll do so coming as a thief in the night. A thief in the night. Aren't we reminded, and don't we all know, that thieves don't send over a postcard telling you I'll be there at 10 after 10 Friday night. They come unexpectedly. They come when they anticipate you're not there, of course. But you and I know quite well the Lord's coming is portrayed as a very sudden, a matter described like a thief coming in the night. You might note in light of that idea on the slide. Why don't we now put those two concepts together? People will be here, we've already learned, and the coming will be sudden. Could it be that some people are not going to know that He has returned? You and I on occasion have heard someone speak about a rapture kind of event wherein some people just aren't here anymore. They are whisked away in some kind of an event called a rapture and other people who are left behind somehow weren't ready for it, were disobedient and thus were unprepared and they were not a part of that rapture event. Well, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. But what you and I do appreciate is Revelation 1, verse 7, when it rather plainly says that every eye shall see Him. Doesn't matter what country you happen to be in. Doesn't matter the particular place you may otherwise be. You might even be asleep. But you'll be instantly awakened and every eye shall see Him. No one will be absent. No one will miss it. It might be fair to notice that that event will be such that it appears to be described as well in a very audible sense. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord Himself shall descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Notice three things where they're highlighted, all of which are audible. A shout, the voice of the archangel, and a trump. And all three are included as a part of that inspired presentation. And I think we can readily agree everyone is not only going to hear the event, but is also going to see that nature of our appearing Lord. Isn't it a bit fascinating to notice that that verse we just noted, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, sets before us the thought that the latter part of the verse is surely something we're now ready to imagine. Where it says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice there is thus some kind of an order. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now we'll revisit that shortly. 
but you might want to go ahead and note where that's located. Let's interject one additional thing as we make preparation for that. We've learned the earth is going to thus be in existence when the Lord returns. But the Word of God is very strong in highlighting the fact that this earth will soon, of course, cease to be. It'll be consumed. In fact, in that very text that we mentioned earlier, that clearly relates to the second coming of the Lord. It made note that there's going to be a, a destruction. This earth is going to be consumed. This earth will be destroyed. It would seem that Peter perhaps has the strongest statement about that. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This earth consumed, burned up, and not just earth. You'll notice the characteristic of the heavens. Now notice that's not the throne of God. That is this local atmosphere of earth as well as the cosmos, the universe as you and I would appreciate it, consumed in the majesty and greatness of that event. Really something to consider, isn't it? Our God who brought all of it into existence can so readily take it out of existence. You may notice as you close that slide, there's another passage that it seems speaks so eloquently about this. It's in the opening chapter of the Hebrew letter. Allow me to invite you to listen as I read beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. And so far, nothing about that has been surprising to us who are students and are mindful of the Word of God. The God of heaven laid the foundations of the earth and also highlighted the heavens as the work of His hands. But now it says this, They shall perish. That pronoun they referring to the issues just raised in the previous verse, meaning the heavens and the earth. They'll be destroyed. But thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. In the same way that you and I might fold a garment and put it away, the Hebrew writer describes for us this event in which the heavens will be folded up, that they themselves will reach the end of what was the intent by God for them. As you and I close that slide, isn't it fair to say that this is an amazing event that is here being described for you and me to consider? But that amazing nature of that event leads us to perhaps another part of the question that was asked. We've highlighted the certainty of the Lord's coming, the matter connected to the end of time as we know it. But what about the more full description of human beings and what they shall experience? at the end, when that time of the Lord's return takes place. That's the purpose of this slide that's now before us. Human beings are immortal spirits. You and I are immortal spirits. We could go back as far as Genesis 2-7 and at least say somewhat about the nature of that idea, but we'll add a few more to it. God Himself, in light of summarizing the creation of the human family, 
pointed out there that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So God took some dust, fashioned a body out of it, but then to animate that body, the animating force had to be provided. You and I all know a body is a body, but it's dead without an animating force. And that animating force, you and I appreciate, God infused it with a spirit, with spirit, if we may so say. And in so doing, the next part of that slide then is this one. We see later in Zechariah 12, verse number 1, that the Lord God formeth the spirit of man within him. Now, that's a very active God. Evolution can't explain that or even hope to explain that. It is the fact that. God forms the spirit of man within him. As the Bible makes description of that spirit, you know, and I, you and I know later that even the Hebrew writer at least made reference to that same truth in the 12th chapter of the Hebrew letter. For right now, with this truth that humans are immortal spirits, we need to be reminded of something rather quickly. A spirit, by its very nature, doesn't have flesh and bones. So this body is just a place where the Spirit tabernacles. It's not that the Spirit has flesh and bones. We know that because God is Spirit, John 4, 24. And furthermore, we are expressly told, taught in Luke 24, 39 that a Spirit does not have flesh and bones. Is it any wonder then that while the Spirit tabernacles in this body, the body is alive. The animating force is present. But clearly, the next item on the slide is this. That explains death. When the Spirit departs the body, James 2.26, the body is now dead. That doesn't mean the Spirit is. It's just that the Spirit has proceeded to dwell elsewhere, not in the body. When James made that statement in that second chapter of the book of James... He was, of course, helping us to appreciate the nature of faith and works... Namely, faith without works is dead. But the way he explained that by helping you and me was the body without the spirit is dead. Even so, faith without works is dead. It might be in that connection. We're now prepared to note this. So at death, we've just learned the spirit isn't dead. Where is the spirit at that time? It's at a place the Bible will call the realm of departed spirits. And the Bible has a word for that. It's Hades. And so at the time of one's death, the spirit simply exits the body or departs the body, but it proceeds to dwell, that spirit does, in a realm that the Bible identifies as Hades, this realm of departed spirits. So those spirits do not cease to exist. Those spirits do not become annihilated. They do not drop out of existence, if you please. They simply dwell elsewhere. It would appear that that's one of the beautiful thoughts about the way in which God fashioned us. In Genesis 1.26, we're told that in the image of God made He Him. So you and I are made in the image of God, but God's a spirit and He'll never die. Well, you and I are spirits. We won't die either. From the time that our existence begins, when in the womb of our mother, 
that from the mother and father joined, we became a spirit. God infused that with spirit, and from that moment forward, we'll never cease to be. Now, the time does come, of course, at death, that spirit departs this body and proceeds elsewhere to this realm we've identified as Hades. And so on the slide, you and I notice a number of Bible verses that at least point us to think more carefully about that. I've invited you to consider Genesis 3.19 as it makes reference to the body. So we know what the body begins to do. Once the spirit departs, the body begins its decay. It begins its deterioration, returning back to the dust of which it was made. And isn't that what God told Adam? For out of the dust wast thou made, and to dust shalt thou return. In that text of Genesis 3.19, it's only amplified by some additional passages in the Word of God, such as Ecclesiastes 3, verse number 20. All return to the dust, the text says. And so you and I know this body isn't permanent in this form. It's going to deteriorate, and it shall over the course of time, once the Spirit departs, it will rather quickly proceed in its return to the dust out of which it was fashioned. It surely is to be noted in that light. Our attention needs to swing back to the Spirit. Those spirits in that realm we call Hades, the assurance of the Word of God, the teaching presented to us is that those spirits are aware. And by that I mean they have a degree of sentience. Isn't it true? The rich man knew that he was in a place of torment. Lazarus knew that he was in a place of comfort. That example, among others, leads us to the impression that those spirits, once they depart the body, they still have a degree of awareness. They can sense pain. They can sense, if you please, elements of pleasantness and comfort around them. But surely in that connection, we remember that Hades is not all pleasant. The rich man, again, wasn't in a pleasant place. You and I rather appreciate that this Hadean realm, as far as the Word of God seems to suggest, has two sections, two compartments, two arenas, if you please. One of them is called paradise. Jesus himself said, Thou shalt be with me today in paradise. And he was speaking to that penitent thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse number 43. And thus we notice that Jesus said he was going to paradise, but yet in Acts 2, verse 30, the text says Jesus went to Hades, and thus paradise was in Hades. But that's not all. We notice in other places it's called Abraham's bosom, like that text in Luke 16. We also find that this place where that man Lazarus was, it was a place of comfort. Isn't it interesting to contemplate the sweetness of a place of comfort like that? Beyond that, you and I notice there's also, though, the other side where you and I recall the rich man was. And may we never forget, there was a great gulf fixed between them. There was no passage either direction. Those on that uncomfortable side could not pass over to the other. And even if they wanted to, those on the comfortable side could not pass over to the uncomfortable part. That great gulf that was fixed, highlighted by Jesus himself in Luke 16, 
is a description that points out one of the last things on that slide. And that's the following. Is this place called Hades permanent? May we never forget, Hades is not heaven, and it is not hell. It's only the realm of departed spirits. And so it's not eternal. One of the surest things the Word of God reminds us is that there's coming a resurrection, a general resurrection, when all, both good and bad, both godly and ungodly, both obedient and disobedient, will be resurrected. Now, to speak about a resurrection, you and I know that something now needs to be further spoken of about that body that has decayed and that spirit that is now in Hades. What shall take place? I seem to recall, and I'm sure you do as well, a specification, a study that's presented in John chapter 11. It was there that Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, had died. And you might recall Lazarus had two sisters. One of them was named Martha, the other named Mary. Upon Lazarus' passing, you might recall that Jesus came. Now, He came after Lazarus had died, but Martha entered into a conversation with Jesus. And she spoke to him things like this, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. She was so confident of the power of the Lord that she was quite assured that had he been there, he could have prevented, no doubt by miraculous means, the death of Lazarus. He could have healed Lazarus of whatever his ailment was, whatever the issue that brought about his death. You might remember, though, that as that conversation proceeded onward, not only did she say that, Again, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. She went on to say, Even now I know that whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And then Jesus said, Thy brother shall rise again. May we all appreciate the directness of this. Lazarus will rise again. It's what he told Martha. And then Martha made this interesting remark, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Even Martha knew about a general resurrection. She appreciated it. Have you ever given thought how little the Old Testament says about that? And yet Martha knew it. You and I have no excuse, nobody on earth today does, for being ignorant or not assured of some of the things we're contemplating tonight. The Word of God testifies of it so strongly, so directly. Jesus, in response to that final statement, she said, I, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. Now you and I know much might be said about the nature of that living again. As you come to the bottom of that slide, if there is a general resurrection, then probably we aren't that surprised at the statement of Revelation 20. And so in Revelation 20, could I invite you to listen as I read only a couple of its verses. Near the end of that chapter, in a rather sterling presentation, John had these things to write. Beginning in verse number 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You may have noticed, with the thought of a general resurrection, there will then be a reuniting of those spirits in Hades with a body. So the spirits will flood out of Hades, and that will leave Hades empty. And you and I notice that in the description of verses 13 and 14, Hades will then be cast into Gehenna hell, into that place that is described in that passage as the lake of fire. But now back to the thought. If those spirits, is there first to be a general resurrection? Those spirits will inhabit a body. Now, the one that you and I now have will long since have decayed, deteriorated most likely. And in so doing, what kind of a body will those spirits inhabit? That brings us to one of the last discussions of the evening, and it's on the next slide. So as you and I put together some of that which we have seen to this point, we notice the dead in Christ... As we learned earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, they will rise first. Notice, the dead in Christ. You may keep in mind, there will be people alive, and so what about Christians? What about others who are alive when Jesus returns? Notice, they're not the ones that will be the first ones rising. The dead in Christ will rise first. You and I do know this, that those who are alive will be changed Instantly. It's not as if they'll have time to obey the gospel if they haven't done it. It's not as if there will be some extended period in which they have the opportunity to seek repentance. Paul would describe it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and 51. He said, That particular matter will be, We shall in no wise prevent them, for we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye. The Greek word that's used there identifies an incredibly brief amount of time. In some way, to give thought to the nature of it, I suppose then we can easily recall one of the other statements Jesus made. Didn't He say in John 5, verses 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the, unto the resurrection of damnation. Jesus pointed out that there would be a time when all would rise, both good and bad, and that it would take place, he asserted, in the very same hour. Not separated by a thousand years like our premillennial friends might wish to tell us. Not separated by any other length of time, but the Lord used that figurative expression identifying this singular moment when all shall in fact be brought forth. And so now, those spirits having come out of Hades, what about that body into which those spirits will go? The latter part of that slide takes you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the fullest description we are given in the Bible about the answer to that question. 
I won't claim even for a moment that it may answer all of our questions about that, but at least this is what we have to go on. Now, there will be a few other verses to which we may turn our attention, but this is the primary one, so I'd like to, in fact, read it. Beginning in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthians ask the very same question that you and I have been asked to ponder tonight. Let's see what the inspired penman Paul had to say about it. Verse 35, And what I will offer to do, we'll proceed through the reading, and I'll pause and make comments. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? There's our question. What body are those resurrected saints going to have? Verse 36, Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be. But bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. So you and I know that that principle works rather well before us. In your garden, you put a corn seed but yet what comes forth forth from it doesn't look like that seed there's a stalk there are leaves it doesn't look like what you planted now we do know that the ear will produce things that do look like that seed again but isn't it interesting that you and i notice we have here this assertion that body that comes forward it isn't exactly like the one that was planted. And then it says, God giveth it a body, verse number 38, as it hath pleased him. Now verse 39, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Now that's a strong little statement. So you've got a variety of varying kinds, if you please, that God has made, fishes and men and birds and beasts. And the inspired writer was quick to point out, even in the celestial realm, the stars have one glory, the moon has another glory, the sun has yet a different one, and the essence of those differences are all remindful that God made all of them. They all aren't the same. And then he contemplates verse 42 so also is the resurrection of the dead. And so the resurrected body is going to be like this. There's a great point, though, to be quickly noted. It's in the next two verses. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Many times in that, the word it has appeared. 
Now, that's a pronoun that's referring to something. What is the it? What is it that is being highlighted? To what does that refer? All we need to do is look at the nouns that have been shown to us. You'll notice that the word it refers to that body. So notice what was just presented. This body, the one that you and I now have, it is sown in dishonor. When we die, that body will be planted in the bosom of earth. And you'll notice it's in dishonor. Years may have brought decay. It's known its aches and pains. It has been connected to a number of things, perhaps accidents that have brought about disfiguring and other matters, but regardless... By the fact that it has died or death has taken place, it is a recognition that it wasn't eternal, sown in dishonor. It's also sown in weakness. It wasn't able to withstand the permanence of years. Deterioration and age took their course. It ran, if you please, through the character of what time that there was relative to it, but it was sown in weakness. Third observation... It is sown a natural body. Flesh and bones, it was sown a natural body. So that body which is sown, the one that, of course, is the matter at the, at the point of death, that body, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, sown a natural body. Let's look at the other three. It is raised in incorruption. Now as we're giving thought to that body that will be the spiritual one, the one that is raised, that one is said to be a spiritual body, not natural like the first one. Furthermore, it is raised in glory. Furthermore, it is raised in power. Very different descriptive words, isn't it? But I would ask you to notice the same word it referred to both of them. I can think of no interpretation of that other than to say that the body that was sown is the same one that will come forward, but it will be changed. Changed into the features characterized of what we've just noted. That one that comes forward, incorruptible, whereas the one planted was corruptible. The one that comes forward, powerful, raised in power, whereas the first one sown in weakness. The one that comes forward, incorruptible, as we've already noted, and full of glory. The one planted, dishonorable. I say that to say that that which is sown is the same word used to describe that which comes forward. Now, you and I know God can do that. Although many centuries may have passed, and your body or mind may long since have deteriorated, God by the nature of that coming forward, can reconstitute a body having these characteristics. And that reconstituted body, that body that's the spiritual one, will be suited for eternity. It will be suited for what lies ahead. You'll notice you're at the bottom of that slide. As we have at least given some thought up through verse number 43 and 44, let me continue reading. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. 
and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord of heaven. And as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. You and I can well imagine then that that body, that's the spiritual one, the one that we'll be fitted with, to say it's incorruptible is to say that it will not wear out with years and time. It'll not decay over the course of moments. It will be fully fitted for that realm of eternity. Isn't it interesting that then we see the Bible's description about eternity in that sense? A few final verses on that slide and our lesson will have ended. As far as those final verses, 1 John 3 verses 1 and 2 is a very brief description of the very subject that still is before us tonight. And that text reads as follows, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so one of the things we're taught there is that when the Lord returns, when He shall appear, we're going to be fitted with a body likened to the spiritual body that the resurrected Lord has. So as you and I give thought to, what about the resurrected Lord? Don't you find it intriguing? The disciples recognized Him. Remember, they were on the shore. I'm sorry, they were out in the boat, Jesus on the shore, and they recognized Him. Apparently, the resurrected Lord had a resemblance in that spiritual body to what He looked like before He died. Will you and I look in eternity at least somewhat like what we look now? Perhaps at least based on a verse like that one. But at the very least, doesn't it remind us that all the issues that otherwise were matters connected to this body, now they won't trouble us. You and I might have arthritis now, but we won't have it then. And we might have kidney stones now, but we won't have them then. And we might have other infirmities of the flesh now, but we won't have them then. But may I say that apparently that resurrected body, it'll be fitted for eternity and it will be incorruptible. And that incorruption will suit it for the place that it's now going to inhabit because now the judgment's going to take place. And those that were in that lovely place of paradise will be granted eternal admission into the place called heaven. And that body will permit them to enjoy that in full array to the nature for all existence. But on the other hand, those that are consigned to the lake of fire, their body will also fit them to not only understand, but to sense and experience the awfulness of that place in an unending, in an unending fashion. Is it any wonder that we're taught in Colossians 3, 4 that Jesus is our life? He is our life, and that resurrected body is its fits for eternity. 
Surely we can now close our lesson in Revelation 22.20, the last couple of verses in all the Bible. Is it any wonder that those who are the saints of God can claim, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because they know what that body is going to be like in the sense of what the blessings and appreciations it will have. At the very least, we've sought to do justice tonight to the two aspects of that question. What's the detailed order of events when the Lord returns? And what are the details concerning the body when that does take place? I hope our study has been a fruitful one, has been a reminder of some things that are, quite frankly, very encouraging and very, very comforting to those who are the faithful of the Lord. It's in part I say that because of the text in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 18. It is in that very verse that Paul, in discussion of this very topic, said, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. To those who love the Lord, this kind of subject is quite comforting. But to those who are not prepared and those who are not ready, there are certainly aspects of it that are very troubling and very upsetting. And yet, you and I know where we ought to be. Aren't we thankful that God has revealed certain of these things to us? encouraged us in this light of knowing a bit about the order of events at the end of time. I know that men have said many things about that. Books by the multitudes have been written about the supposed end of time and the signs that portend that supposed event. And you and I know the Lord Himself said there are no signs for that. You and I know we have to be watchful, vigilant, alert, and ready. If there's someone in this assembly that's not ready, why not make ready? Jesus reminded all of us the essence of that parable in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, about ten virgins, and five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. And the wise ones not only took enough oil for the moment, but enough to last however long it was for the bridegroom to come. You and I have got to be ready to last however long it takes him. His timetable is the right one. But you remember those foolish virgins took only enough oil for a little while. They didn't take enough to last until the time when the bridegroom would arrive. If you have taken a little oil, but the patience and steadfastness and perseverance is not enough to last, you need to take care to edify yourself in that way. And we would love to encourage and assist you and help you because we each want to be ready for that time as we've described it tonight. This song of encouragement has been chosen and selected. If we could be of some assistance and help tonight to anyone in this assembly, we want you to know that we're ready and capable and rather excited to do that. If you need to become a Christian, do that in belief, repentance, confession, baptism. If you have known the way of the Lord but have chosen to walk from it, come back to your first love. And we'd be delighted tonight in observation of that element of repentance and confession to pray unto God. And He's promised to make forgiveness of that and to put you in a state again of fidelity and faithfulness. If we could help you tonight in any way, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?